Most of you here today have at least some idea of what it means to have a funeral. You've gone to one, you've gone to many perhaps. A funeral is generally comprised of two different parts. The first part is called the viewing. Some people call it a wake. The viewing is where people come and they meet with the family and they talk and relatives come into town and people kind of catch up with one another and they get to... Uh, console the family and express their love and care. And that's usually the day prior to the funeral. And then that's the second part of a funeral is the actual funeral service, the day that we come and, and the, the casket is brought to the church, usually the church or the chapel. And they have a service. Usually a pastor is going to preach something. You know what a funeral's like. Most of you have been to one. Right after that is a burial or what's called the interment. And they have a brief time together there. And then the people walk away. Some things that we know about a funeral, or at least if you've ever experienced one, it's very difficult just how quickly things seem to happen. Because when there's a funeral, it's sudden. When there's a death, it's sudden. And then right after there's a death, plans have to be made. And those plans don't really involve what's just happened. They involve the process of taking care of the person who has passed. Then people begin to make phone calls, relatives are contacted, and then the list goes on and on. Accommodations have to be made. People are trying to come to town. I mean, it just it goes on. And then finally, the day of the funeral, it's just like reality sets in, and all of a sudden, we have a service. The service is over. Grief begins to set in. We go to the graveside, and then that's such a brief time, and then we're forced to turn around and walk away all at a time when grief has finally set in, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle and busyness of all the legalities that have to be taken care of, we're just now grieving. And we begin to grieve, and we're, we're pushed away. We're pushed away from the graveside. We have, to, we have to leave there and begin the process of healing. So I know what some of you are thinking right now. Wait, Brother Christmas, let's see. We've been in a series in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. And we're down to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What's this about a funeral? I'll tell you what it is. Nothing is more like going through the process of forgiving someone who's hurt you than a funeral. That's what it's like. It's like a, a burial. A death has to happen. It's got to be buried. It's got to be put away. You've got to get through the grief and it starts that process for you. You've got to get through that. And so I'm talking to you today about unforgiveness and forgiveness. So we come to Matthew chapter 18 and Jesus had some things to say about forgiveness. So instead of staying right there on the brief verse in Matthew 6, let's go on to some things that he has for us because he's going to share with us a parable. And then Peter's going to respond to what he has said with a great question. As a Christ follower, though, in order to experience the joy of the Spirit-filled life, you have to forgive people. That was a perfect time for a huge amen, but I'll go without it for now. Maybe it'll come later in the service. You've got to forgive or you'll never have the blessed life Jesus intended for you to have. The one that he so desperately wants to give you involves forgiveness. 
It's got to happen in your life. It's got to be there. Let's just have a definition on forgiveness right now, okay? And this is, this is really what I consider to be a biblical definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the act of ending all feelings of resentment toward an offender, as well as any claims for revenge and demands for repayment. Let's say that again. The act of ending all feelings of resentment toward an offender, as well as any claims for revenge and demands for repayment. It just brings it all to an end. It says, I'm done with it. I'm acting on this. No more claims. I don't have any more claims against the person. I can't hold something else up. I can't get historical later down the road where I look back and now I'm going to bring it back out and hold it against you. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is we're done with it. Everybody say done with it. Yeah, it's over. And in Matthew 18, Jesus is explaining to his disciples how to deal with conflict, really, is what he's talking about here. And he says, if your brother sins against you, you go consult with him about it privately. Then, if he doesn't hear you on the matter, take one or two other people with you and go to him again. And if he still refuses to stop sinning against you, what you do is you take it before the church body And if that doesn't work, you treat him like you would a heathen, an unbeliever, a sinner, a lost person, or dishonest tax collector. That's what tax collectors were. They were just dishonest. So people didn't think too highly of them. So you treat him like that. You wouldn't want to go see the tax collector. and You you despise them. You're going to need to despise this person who won't hear you. And in response to that, look with me in verse 21. Because Peter asked Jesus this wonderful question. It's a great question sometimes that we deal with, even just internally, if we never verbalize it. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came to him and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven Jewish rabbis taught that three times you were to forgive. Three times. That was was their way of saying, you know, you go the extra mile. So when Peter suggests that you do it seven times, that's really the the goody two-shoes, self-righteous, Sunday school answer we give sometimes. Because seven is the number of completeness, right? So how many times do I forgive? Seven, right, Lord? Seven? You think you say, oh, very good, Peter. He said, no. Seventy times Seven. In other words, why you, would you count? I mean, who's counting here, Peter? You've got to forgive. And so look with me again, verse 23, he goes on, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now we're getting into a story. Now we're getting into a parable. Something to learn in this. He's going to teach them something. So a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, verse 24, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So this man owes 
his master 10,000 talents. A talent was a great sum. A talent was a 75-pound weight. And it was used to put on the scales to measure. You put the weight on one scale, and then you put all your gold and silver coins or all your gold or whatever it was over here, and you would weigh out your silver. You would weigh out to the equal of 75. That would be one talent. Now, that's a lot of money, okay? Just to give you an idea what one talent was, in that day, one talent was equal to about 20 years' wages. That's a lot of money. So that's one talent. But in this story, Jesus is talking about 10,000 talents. So multiply your own salary by 20 or so and, and just think about how difficult it would be for you to repay 20 years' worth of work. In one lump sum, just all of a sudden, you've got to repay that amount. That's just one talent. But he's talking about 10,000. Now, why did he say 10,000? Why not a million? Well, 10,000 was the height of the round numbers used in that day. So he's saying this is the maximum number as we know it. It's 10,000. So Jesus goes right to the top. And so basically what he's saying, he said, there's a guy who owes a debt that is more debt. It's the most debt we even know of. So much we can't comprehend it. It's right at the top. Such an incredible debt. Of course we're supposed to walk away going, well, no one can pay that. I mean, we can't pay the one. How can we pay 10000 And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to see here. This is a debt that's unpayable. There's no way. It's, it's impossible, totally impossible to repay that kind of debt. Still the servant begs the master for the opportunity to repay a debt that he cannot ever, ever, ever pay. No chance of it at all. And the master's moves with compassion and he forgives him of the entire debt. So let me ask you this morning, are you a forgiver? Are you someone who forgives someone else what they've done to you that's wrong? Are you someone who can offer that and can have compassion on them and, and give up yourself and begin to bury unforgiveness and move along and, and give them forgiveness. Well, let me talk to you just a moment about the rationalizations that we often make when it comes to forgiving someone else. I'm going to go through four of them just briefly. Because the truth is, sometimes we try to justify not giving forgiveness. Sometimes we try to look at what someone's done, what they've said, and we begin to rationalize why we should not have to worry about giving them forgiveness. Okay, and here's one of them. This is too big of an issue for me just to let it slide. Did I strike a nerve with anybody? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm just going to admit to you, I've been there before. I mean, there's some people, they do something or they say something. I, and, hey, that's too big of a deal. I'm not just going to let that slide. So we keep bringing it up over and over again. You keep giving, you go through the details of it and, and make statements as to why you're entitled to continue to feel the way that you feel. It's just too big a deal to let this thing go. Rationale number two, I can get over it if I just give it some time. It's just going to take me some time. But here's the truth about wounds. Wounds left untreated get infected. You think that it's just going to go away over time, and some things do. Some people with just a little time, hey, you know, it's just, I just let it go. It's okay. I don't need to make a thing of it. And you can do that. Sometimes you can't, perhaps. And you know it's a wound when it keeps getting bumped and scraped, and it keeps breaking open, 
and, and you're going on through life, you're walking through Walmart. Don't you just love Walmart? Yeah, I know, bittersweet, but you still go there. And you're walking through Walmart, and you see them down at the end of a far aisle, and resentment just starts building up. You remember what they've done. See, it just keeps coming up, doesn't it? You just keep bringing it up inside of your heart. Or you hear someone else come and say something good and favorable about that person. And dying on the inside of you is this urge. You're dying to, to set them a little bit straight by telling them what that person's done to you. So they really know what that person's like. <laughs> and you're just holding it back, right? And if over time it doesn't heal, you know time's not working for you. Here's a third rationale. I'll forgive them once they come and apologize to my face. They come apologize to me, then I'll forgive them. You know why people play the lottery? People play the lottery because they think today's their day. Today, my chances, I'm feeling good. They don't say, I feel good. I'm feeling good. Today's my day to win. I just feel it. I just know it. So they play the lottery, ignoring the fact that regardless of how they feel, the odds of them winning the lottery are zilch. Right? Am I right? I mean, you know. And so someone waits on someone to come forgive them and, and, and forgive them face to face, offer an apology and ask for forgiveness. It's kind of like playing the lottery. You're waiting and you're waiting, but the odds of someone doing that if they haven't already, it's pretty much nil. It's not going to happen. And so you wait around expecting and waiting. And listen, even if they did come to you, you've waited so long, your heart's not even right about it. If they did come ask for forgiveness from you, you probably wouldn't receive it. And their, their apology is probably going to come across to you as inadequate anyway. But let's be honest. What we know about most people, including ourselves, is that when we are hurt or when we hurt someone else, we tend to downplay that it's as bad as it really is. We downplay that side of it. And we say, well, what I did wasn't that bad. They should be able to get over this. I mean, that's, isn't that what we're like? Sometimes we don't identify with them as far as the depth of the hurt of what we caused. We downplay that side of it because we're not the one feeling that. They are. And so sometimes when someone comes to us and apologizes to us, we feel like it's superficial because they don't seem to really understand how bad what they did hurt. They don't get it. And that apology was so superficial, we say, I'll forgive them once they come and apologize, but that doesn't always work. Here's a fourth rationale that we give. They hurt me once. I'm not going to give them another opportunity to hurt me. In other words, I'm not going to them about this thing. I'm not going to offer them forgiveness. I'm not going to give them another shot at it. I'm just going to stay away. They can live their life. I'll live my life. But here's the thing, okay? When we come to the Word of God, here's what we learn about the heart of Jesus. Here's what we learn about the commands of God. The commands of God in His Word tell us this. There are no loopholes when it comes to the Christian offering forgiveness to other people. We have to forgive. We have to have a, a heart of forgiveness. We can't rationalize or begin to try to justify why we would withhold forgiveness from someone else, why we can 
continue to walk with this attitude that says they don't deserve it, therefore I'm not going to give it. Now go on to verse 28 with me if you would. That same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. He would not, but went and threw him into prison till he could pay the debt. Threw him in prison. The same servant who had been forgiven by his master He goes and he holds someone else guilty. He holds them in bondage. He holds them captive. He makes them pay. He grabs him by the throat. I mean, he got physical. It's a story, okay? It's in the parable. He got physical. Made him angry. We should do everything within us to forgive other people because, number two, the fallout for unforgiveness is huge. He's owed him a hundred denarii, which is equal to only three months' salary. It's a large sum, but you know what? It's, it's achievable if someone's given enough time to work at it and chip away at it. They can pay you that debt of three months' salary, perhaps, and not an undoable thing like the 10,000 talents. But when the man couldn't repay it, he chokes him. He's getting thrown into prison over it. I mean, he's just upset. He's angry. Here's, I'm just going to give you two fallout points. And they're really quite huge when we don't forgive other people. The first fallout point is this. I want you to think of this. At some point, these two must have been friends. I mean, do you just go loaning money to anybody and everybody? Absolutely not. You've got to know them. You've got to know what they're about. And you have a sense of trust. You're, they're going to pay you back. And so that's the way you're like. You give them the money with the intent. They're going to pay you back. They don't, you might get upset, whatever. But unforgiveness shatters relationships. When one can't forgive, I know what you're thinking. Well, yeah, not paying back what you owe will shatter a relationship. And I would say, yeah, that's another sermon, okay? That's another sermon. We're talking about us forgiving people. And not forgiving someone can shatter a relationship. The second thing that it can do is it destroys our witness before others. The servant's co-workers became grieved, the Bible says. Verse 31, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you. See, it grieved those guys. They said, look at him. Look at what he owed. He was forgiven. He should have been in prison for life. I mean, but and this guy, such a little debt, and he won't forgive him. It grieved him. And I'm telling you, when you don't forgive other people, it hinders your witness. It destroys your testimony in the Lord. One research done using MRI scans showed that feelings of unforgiveness have practically the same effect on a person's brain as does anger and stress and can lead to the development of psychiatric disorders in people who have been victimized. And when we look around our world, look around your life, look around in your segment of life, your 
your environment, you know perhaps people who are struggling here because of some sort of issue like that. They've been hurt, they've been traumatized, someone has hurt them deeply, they can't get past it, Uh, maybe the other person won't let it die, whatever it is, and they're traumatized by that, and they're walking through life with difficult mental issues. I'm not saying they're brain dead. I'm not saying now they've come to a sense of retardation or something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about can't handle things very well because they can't get past this. It's traumatized them. Unforgiveness has the ability to do that to you. Unforgiveness and anger and bitterness and resentment can well up inside a person so much that it affects their ability on the job, It affects their ability to manage their household, to deal with their kids, to deal with other family members. It just goes on and on and on. Unforgiveness destroys our witness and it shatters relationships. It will affect your life on every level. Your personal well-being, your relationships, and your spiritual walk with the Lord. Unforgiveness can do that. Now, let's go on a little bit further. We said in verse 32, His master, after he called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? In verse 34, he continues, And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Wow, it just got heavy now, didn't it? This thing just built up a little bit for us. You see, the consequences of unforgiveness are long-lasting. Notice that when the man was brought to stand before his master, he was not even given the opportunity to respond. To, to his master's question, he asked him the question. You mean, shouldn't you have had pity on him? He doesn't get to answer that question. It's just like, go to the torturers. There's no talking about this one. This isn't up for deba- debate. There's, there's no explanation any of us could ever give when we stand before the master of all, the master of the universe, the master and Lord of our lives. We stand before him, no explanation will there be that we can offer to him for not being willing to forgive someone. What will we say to him? Nothing. What can we say? Nothing. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing that will hold water. There's no ground for me to stand on for not forgiving someone else when I stand before the great forgiver of all who dwells in my heart and life. Look at James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment will be without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't don't miss that little last sentence, that last small sentence. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first verse is judgment. Judgment's without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. I ran across a video I want you to see. It's it's about real life type of issue. It's not the kind of thing everyone goes through, but I think when you get to the end, you can see that that what happened there, though, 
We all face issues like that from time to time, just maybe different subject matter, maybe different things that happen. You watch it and uh, let it speak to your heart. One night when we were coming home from work, we saw this caution tape, police line, do not cross near our neighborhood. So we knew something had happened. When we got home, my son wasn't home. His curfew was 10. And I said to my husband, go find Paul. Well, shortly thereafter, then walks my husband with uh, police officers. You know, the crime scene, the police tape, do not cross, comes into mind. And I'm thinking, oh, something happened to him. You know, he's hurt. He's in the hospital or something. And then the police officer walked up to me and he says, I hate to tell you this, but your son is dead. And I, time and, and eternity and everything stops for a moment. I think my heart even stopped for a second. And I just kept looking at him and not wanting to believe it. Everything happened in slow motion. I couldn't even support my, my bone structure. I just fell to the ground and I started crying. That whole night was just a haze uh, of memories, of it's not true, denial, shock, all that stuff that kind of happens. The next morning, I was told that as he was crossing the street on his bicycle, another young man, 16 years old, hit him head on with his truck. So my son, 16, and another boy, 16, collided. Uh, one lived and one didn't. The young man attended the same high school, and I just remember thinking, what, what was he doing? Was he drinking? What, you know, you want, to, you want to think the worst of the person that would do something like that. Come to find out, he was not a bad kid, really quiet kid, had just gotten his driver's license, was, was new to the road. It was devastating. I remember being so angry. So the people around you were trying to hug you, and they, they don't know what to say. I remember just being flooded with those feelings of abandonment. Wow, if you could just take my son. You know, I remember just being so confused. And so in that, there was that scripture kind of that just kept coming. You know, all the scriptures I had learned combating that. Because every time I had that negative thought, God was telling me, you know, that John 360 forgot so little. You know, it was like for every negative, there was two or three positives that would come back and play. And I think that memory tape, the scriptures, that we're coming, we're, we're fighting them. We're fighting the anxiety, we're fighting the grief. God was in the entire middle of it, holding me, supporting me, comforting me. The boy, he was living in another faith, and in that religion, when you do something wrong, uh, that's kind of, you know, a check mark against you. So when you do certain things, you're moved to another level of heaven, or you're not in the ultimate heaven. This kid, you know, is going to kind of live with that. I'm never good enough. I'm never going to earn it. And I just thought, I'm not sure of his salvation and his security, but I know where my son is in the best place ever. And uh, I just started thinking about him. At the funeral, he walked up to me in a little trembling lip, and, you know, this little kid just, you know, I'm sure just terrified of me, thinking, what is this lady going to do to me? I mean, part of me wanted revenge, another part was the mom going up this poor kid. And in that moment, there was this divine, supernatural kind of thing. It was like, Jane, you have the power to curse or bless this boy for the rest of his life. And I'm giving you the ability to forgive him now. And it was just, it was, it was just a moment. I, it was a brief moment, but it was enough said. It was God said, forgive. I forgive you. You can forgive. So I just kind of, I took his hand and I said, it's nice to meet you. And I said, I want you to know something. I forgive you. And God loves you. And 
my pocket, so I kind of pulled it out and I said, my son wore this ring. I want you to wear this ring. And I want you to know every time you look at it that I forgive you and God loves you. And so we started uh, conversations and we meet for coffee or lunch. And so we talk about forgiveness and love and we talk about God and being in charge and, and then, you know, just sharing with him that the most important thing we need to do is to accept Christ and live forever, you know, with God. And so we agreed. He came to faith. He accepted Christ the year after my son's death. This poor kid could have gone on to just, you know, counseling and grieving the rest of his life destroyed. But love, grace, forgiveness in his life allowed him to live on, go to school, get married. So I can feel good knowing that the resurrection power of Christ took that death in my life and resurrected it into something good. All that I have, everything that is in me, is to promote Christ and what he's done in my life and what he can do for others. And I can't stop telling it. I can't stop living it because it's, it's saved me. It's, it's formed me. And I don't get it, but I know I've been forgiven a lot. So through God, I can forgive a lot. And I know that God gave me his son so I can live. I can give him my son. It's just that kind of thing. Just coming to that place where the Lord spoke to her and said, forgive. And she was obedient to do it. And what freedom she has now, knowing that she has forgiven. What freedom that young man found in her offering forgiveness and then coming to know Christ. Forgiveness is powerful. We consider what the scripture says, like she mentioned, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we consider that, that all of us have a sin debt that we cannot pay. It's like the 10,000 talents. We are all guilty of 10,000. It's the highest number. I mean, sin is just the highest number. It's what it is. It's just, it's got a heavy weight to it. We consider that, but that Jesus gives us complete forgiveness and he gives it to us as a gift, a free gift. Nothing we could ever say to him on that day when we stand before him can justify our unwillingness to forgive. Did you ever tell your parent something, you know, and they've been there and done all that, and so, in fact, ten times over what you're going through, and they look at you or your friend looks at you and says, you don't even know who you're talking to on this one. That's what it would be like to tell Jesus. Jesus, you don't understand why. I, I, I just can't forgive. He would... In today's language, maybe, you know, our young people say, really? Would Jesus say, really, you can't? I stretched out my arms. I forgave you everything. You can forgive. In fact, he empowers us to forgive, does he not? It might not be instantaneous, but the first actions toward forgiveness are and can be instantaneous. The first step forward can be instantaneous, and haven't we found that when we take a step of faithfulness with the Lord to do what he's commanded us to do, the second step is so much easier. He just kind of takes over one step after the other, and we're walking in forgiveness. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, you yourself cannot be forgiven. And what happened in this parable is the servant's debt remained as it had been from the beginning because he wouldn't forgive. It didn't have to be that way. But on the other hand, Jesus has said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
He also said, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So here's what we know about forgiveness. There's no fallout on forgiveness. There's no negative fallout. There's no long-lasting negative effect. I mean, the only effect, the only long-lasting effect for forgiving someone is of being free from the burden of unforgiveness. What a great effect. I mean, it's no longer there. You're free from all resentment, and you're right with God. And I would just encourage you in this. Imagine your life being that way today. Free from the burden, free from any resentment, free from all kinds of bitterness, just because you took that first step and said, Lord, you forgave me, I will have compassion, and I will forgive others. And I would tell you this, you almost have to prepare yourself for that. Because you might say, well, I'm, I'm not harboring unforgiveness. I'm good. Me and God, we're good. You know, I mean, everything's fine now. But do you not think that someone will come up to you sometime and hurt you? Someone's going to say something. Word's going to get back. You're going to be hurt. You're going to become distraught. Bitterness will ensue. And the relationship might begin to go awry if there's not forgiveness. See, we all need to forgive. We all need to know that God says, I'm a God of mercy, I'm a God of forgiveness, I have forgiven you, now you in turn go and forgive others. And what a testimony to someone else that you relieve them of the debt that they really owe because Christ has relieved you of that debt. Imagine your life that way. It can be that way right now. Imagine a church with no root of bitterness whatsoever. Imagine that. See, I've been here enough to know. Y'all been together a long time. Some of you 20, 30, 40 years. Do I think as a pastor there's never been any root of bitterness in the church? No. Oh, I got to tell my kids, you know, I may look stupid, but I wasn't born yesterday. Could there be any bitterness, root of bitterness from time gone by still festering? You know, I'm going to stay on this end of the foyer. Praise God for a bigger foyer. You stay on your end, I stay on mine. Bless God, we got more aisles. We don't meet in the middle aisle no more. That's not the kind of church God would want you to be. So if there is that, imagine the church without any root of bitterness whatsoever. Anything that's festered before, it's gone. Forgiveness has been offered. Relationships are healed. And the Spirit of God is moving and blessing. That's what God wants. So if that exists, why not go ahead and have a funeral on unforgiveness beginning today? When people did business with God in the Bible, they had a meeting place. They had an altar. It was a monument that they made. It was a place. It became a place of remembrance. I met with God right there. He dealt with me. I heard his voice. I obeyed. I let it go. And I moved on. And where is it? Oh, it's way over there somewhere. That altar's there. And every now and then I pass by it, and it serves as a memorial. It's a remembrance thing with me. I remember what he did, and I remember meeting with God. That's what an altar's like. If you have problems with somebody else, you've got to go to them. That's that conflict thing early in Matthew 18. Okay. If you need to offer forgiveness, you've got to offer forgiveness. So let's stand. Let's let the healing begin. Let's let the funeral take place today and all throughout this week.
the funeral for unforgiveness so we can be free. And as he sings and leads, you follow and, and, and make the commitment in your heart that God would have you to make. I'll be down here to receive people that need to make a public confession of faith in Christ, a decision to be baptized, a decision of church membership, or if you just want prayer, be glad to pray with you this morning. I'll be right down here. You come. But just know you're free to come and just kneel before the Lord at an altar this morning. I'm forgiven.